I mean, it was pretty bad. It was probably within a few weeks of um, having to just um, pull the uh, escape cord. The first people knocking at our door were actually government and the French government, to be specific. A lot of investors, I think, are just pattern matching and they want to find the next Slack or they want to find the next WhatsApp. We have a full studio today with both Amandine Lapop and Matthew Hudson, who are the founders of Element on the show. Element is a flagship matrix-based secure collaboration and messaging platform that has gone on to raise over $48 million. On the show today, the guys tell me how close the company came to near bankruptcy. They tell me how they managed to slightly pivot the company before even launching. We talk about scaling and growth, which allowed Element to go on to acquire Gitter. And we talk about hiring in 23 different countries, doubling the team from 60 to 120. I'm your host, Mark McDonough, and this is the UKTN podcast. Our sponsors of the show, Uncapped, believe it's crazy that for e-commerce businesses to fund growth through marketing, infantry or hiring, they have to sell equity to VCs, especially when they know they'll make that money back right away. Uncapped solved that problem. Already helping over 500 businesses worldwide, they offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales, no dilution or loss of control. Founders simply apply online, receive a decision within 24 hours and make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue. Head to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN to find out more. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Now let's get into the show. I thought it might be a nice idea to start with, you know, product market fit and pivoting. And I've, I've heard that, you know, you identified a market went after a specific market and then things slightly changed uh, as you grew. I'd love to know who the market originally was for Element. Sure. Shall I, uh, shall I take that one? I sure. So, I mean, it's interesting in that on one hand, um, we've never pivoted. So, in fact, we were looking back at our original pitch case, uh, not even for Element, but for Matrix, which is the open source project that we created back in 2014. And um, the, we came up with an 18-month plan. And I swear it might be the only 18-month plan I've ever hit in my life in terms of looking back on it. It basically was um, we go and create a communication protocol. Uh, we go and implement it. And we put some flagship um, implementations out there that people can use. And we grow a network. And people will use it. And that's what we did. And here we are, what, eight years later, and we basically just extrapolated that forward. But the thing that changed massively is that we came up with this idea to create a communication protocol that would basically be the missing communication layer of the web. So a really aggressively disruptive, slightly anarchic, somewhat subversive way to basically re-democratize communication, to still control of comms back from Facebook and Google and Apple and Microsoft and all the other massive players who are jealously holding their users hostage, basically, inside their communication systems like WhatsApp or Slack or Zoom or whatever it might happen to be. And we thought, hey, why don't we disrupt the hell out of this and do what Linux did to the big um, commercial Unix vendors back in the 90s? If you think back to when it was Sun and with Solaris and Silicon Graphics with Irix and all these guys. And almost overnight, a bunch of open source hackers were able to destroy the commercial Unix market and go and create Linux and go and let everybody run their own Unix servers for free. And so that's what we are doing and trying to do at least against the Microsofts and Slacks, etc. So we assumed that the people who would go really over-enthusiastically crazy for this dream would be um, like open source hackers and slightly sort of anarchic types who want to take over the world. But instead... The first people knocking at our door were actually governments and the French government, to be specific. <laughs> Which is not what we anticipated <laughs> at all. <laughs> Literally, one of our developers um, got a cold call by GitHub, that well-known sales channel, saying, hello, I'm here from the Ministry of Digital of France, and we need your software everywhere now. How do we do this? So, yeah, it was quite uh, quite interesting to um, to start with them. and uh, But honestly, it makes sense because... 
what Matrix allows you to do is to literally run your own WhatsApp or your own Slack equivalent. So it's you can run it yourself. It's fully end-to-end encrypted. So of course, government would love it. It's decentralized, which means that its speech ministry can talk to one another while still having control of their own deployment. So of course, they would love it. But yeah, it was um, we were not expecting that. So I'm not sure. Does that count as a pivot, or is that? I mean, that is almost the definition of product market fit. It's just not the market we were planning for at all. Well, well it was probably a pivot, uh, but you found out at the very beginning, rather yeah. than going after a specific area and then finding that oh, these actually aren't our market, or they're a percentage of our market, and not a hundred percent of our market, and all these other areas are reaching out to us and, and doing business with us. So, like, I know some listeners now uh, will be, you know. Will be able to compare themselves with working with governments where some of them can be slow. You know, you've got these these three quotes that they go through. They're they're great um, customers and such because they they do have money and they spend money in the right areas, but they can be slow in in doing business with and especially for for startups that need you know cash. They need turnover quickly. They need customers coming on the books quite fast. It's probably different for you guys because they are reaching out to you. I take it. Exactly. Basically, if you have something they really, really want and they're the one knocking at at your door, they will find ways to unblock money. It might not be like five years contract like this. It will probably be here, um, get a bit of from here, a bit from there for a while. And literally for France, it took, it took us three years to actually land a proper full-time contract. But it's, um, yeah, it, 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 they managed to get money over to you at, at some point. So the whole thing is often getting your foot in the door in the first place. And you're right, that if it's something that they want, they will find a way to make it happen. And certainly the more painful process has been then eventually you hit a point where you do have to do the big public tender for the big multi-year deal. But by that point, you've already kind of proven yourself. You're somewhat, um, hopefully, uh, got some sort of, What's the right word? Um, Footprint. Momentum, precisely. So that's what we were... uh, That's the pattern that we've found. But I think in general, I'm not sure I would recommend trying to sell to governments Mm -hmm. if it's something that they're not explicitly asking for in the first place. I I take it the French government were were the first of many. You're you're working with a a couple of governments now, are you? Yes. uh, So there is France um, and Germany as well, uh, the the armed force specifically and some educations um, in um, Schleswig-Holstein, the healthcare uh, market in Germany. And then we also have the UK, uh, who came on, which came on board, and we have a couple more in the wings that we can necess- not necessarily talk about. You can talk about the US a bit. The US. So the four that we can talk about is France, Germany, UK, and US. But there is about six or seven others. In fact, we can talk about Sweden in that they have um, published transparently on their side that they're looking into us, um, alongside with some other options. But the interesting thing there is that they are looking at matrix for the interoperability piece because you've got a kind of two layer layer cake here of matrix being the open source protocol and then elements being one of many um, deployments on top or implementations on top so you can think of element being a little bit like netscape was in the early days of the web and um, you know, it acts as the flagship deployment, the kind of icebreaker, the spearhead, to try to explain to the real um, community what this slightly weird, geeky thing is. Like the web originally was this really weird, abstract thing out of CERN done by some physicist with an X station. And likewise, Matrix is pretty geeky in its own right. As an open, decentralized communication protocol, you need to have an app. You can install something that you can put a face to, just like Netscape, Navigator, Gold 3.0 or whatever was the equivalent back in the day. Element does the same thing um, for Matrix. So that's um, you know what we were sending out to, um, to do there. Can I ask, it's interesting to me, Like, how do you target, like when it comes to marketing, how do you target governments? Like, are, are the majority of them finding you? Or are you putting content yeah. out there? Are you putting money behind something that you're getting in front of them? So the way it started has been very much them coming to us because of the tech. So it's been completely uh, bottom up from the open source community and all their techie um, actually looking around on the... Looking around at what uh, technologies were actually use, coming up and being interesting for us, for them, sorry. So they, they then 
got in touch with us and then we had meetings where literally you had the guy sitting at the back of the room, which was the person who discovered the tech. Now we are building on this now that we have contracts and more. We have marketing department even, which took us three years to do, (laughs) four years to land. Uh, so uh, now we are building use cases and uh, being a bit more, um, doing a bit more marketing around it to find people. But still, it's word of mouth and uh, from the tech community um, moving up. Like when you say word of mouth, like we're ta- we're talking governments here. So like, are 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 countries talking to each other about this, or is it? Yeah, yeah they are very much. So. So there is a massive open governance and uh, open government scene out there where everybody tries to figure out what the correct tech stack is to use. And like the United Nations um, puts out recommendations for kind of open tech that a government can use in order to avoid getting held hostage by Microsoft or whoever it might be. And um, all the guys, uh, DCMS and previously GDS, who do gov.uk, for instance, are leaders in organizing conferences where they invite everybody from around the world and say, hey, look at our amazing HMRC sites or whatever. And um, everybody wants to almost be the more transparent um, organization. And we've seen a real pattern with um, government that people realize that taxpayer money should not just be funneled into some proprietary Silicon Valley beer moth, but actually public funds should be put into public software. So if you have the ability, the option to build something and fund it as open source, then you're taking taxpayer money and you're basically giving it straight back to the taxpayer by funding something for the social good of everybody. And I think we came in at the right point, um, both in France and Germany and the UK, in terms of an interest in uh, both getting technology the government needs whilst also having a lot more defensible story than just buying another billion dollars worth of Office 365 licenses. I want to change the conversation slightly here just to, to cover something that most entrepreneurs can actually relate to. Um, and as we know, um, I think it's like something like nine and 10 companies in the first three years of business, you know, fail. Um, am I right by saying you guys nearly failed at the beginning where you, where you were going slightly towards the bankruptcy side of things, running out of money? Is that true? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, there was, uh, so our, our corporate history is that for the first three years, we were incubated within a um, organization called Amdocs, who are a massive um, telecom supplier. And we used to run their unified communications division um, in much the same roles we have today, me being a kind of techie um, CTO type, I'm indeed being a responsible adult on the sort of operational and biz ops and COO side of things. And um We incubated Matrix there full-time for three years, but perversely, we became victims of its own success in that the protocol started being used by lots of different people, um, particularly Amdocs' competitors, and they found themselves wondering why they were fitting the whole bill and said, well, if you guys are as great as you think you are, then why not spin out and raise money and um, good luck with that? So we spun out. And this was 2017. And the way the mechanics worked in the end, because reasons, is that basically the 12 of us who were working together at the time um, quit and we pooled what money we had. And I'm indeed myself frantically started getting raising seed funding. And we had about three months of runway before the whole thing would be dead before it was really even born. And that was a big ask to ask people to jump off a cliff without a parachute and do the proverbial promise that we're going to build an aeroplane on the way down. And with huge, huge thanks to Status, a um, decentralized communication project who built on top of Ethereum, they had just done one of the first ICOs in 2017 and they saw what we were doing and wanted to help us. And so they were the somewhat unexpected um, knight on a white horse who swept in to go and save um, us and get the seed funding in place and anchor the value of the company and really get things going. But certainly in the first couple of months where we've persuaded these people to quit their jobs and there is no money, that was pretty close to hitting a very brick wall. Yeah, to the <laughs> it was quite amusing how 
I was thinking back and thinking, when when did we get close? I, I couldn't remember it. It's like yeah, it's always like <laughs> some, some memory. What? Some, oh no, everything was fine. Yeah, some kind of post traumatic stress, kind of <laughs> the rose tinted glasses. No, we have never gone bankrupt. No, no. Our, our runway never went down to like two weeks. <laughs> is that is that how close it went? Was it two weeks? Because I said I've I, I interviewed a founder previously on the show that. Um, it was the founder of, of Flashback, and they got down to something like two hundred pounds in their joint account. And when they were at the two hundred pounds, that's when they managed to sign uh, a, a deal. So, how how close did you get? And the, the only reason I ask is because there's so many um, founders listening to this podcast now that can relate to it. I know I can relate to it with with, with two or three businesses I had in the past that you you come so close to the bone. Uh, and it, yeah. I'd just be interested to see how close you came. I'm trying to remember. I, uh... I mean, it was pretty bad. It was probably within t- a few weeks of um, having to just um, pull the uh, escape cord um, because so... obviously we didn't want to trade whilst insolvent or anything for obvious reasons. Um, but in terms of actual... Well, the team got hired. I think it was probably two months thanks to the fact that we had a contract going with um, the customers already and donations from the foundation. So basically, it was not just pure... Oh, yeah. I mean, we did have... Um, critically, we did have um, some revenue, yeah. uh, which certainly helped. <laughs> and uh, we were very generously supported by the open source community because we were very transparent and said, hey, guys, look, we've lost all of our funding that we've been relying on, so you know, who can help us out? And um, uh, particularly some of the louder... Um, websites out there like Hacker News, for instance, really rallied to the cause and we got a lot of publicity off the back of that. And we certainly lived off those donations probably for a month in order to get that additional month of runway. But so, yeah, it was probably one to two months, depending on how you count. And we weren't taking any salary, which um, uh, must have helped a bit. And I think that some other people... Were um, minimum. I think, yeah. I think people were on minimum salary rather than proper... Yes, it's never yeah, easy, though, is it? When you're where you're going through that type of stress, where, as you said, you both weren't taking salaries, and you are paying others, and you, you might be paying the minimum salary, but just you're, you're still paying them. It's never easy seeing like being, you know, having to pay others while you're not taking into yourself. So, what was that like stressfully for the both of you? I can remember um, uh, going to the doctor at one point because I was feeling dizzy. And couldn't work out why I was feeling dizzy. It wasn't like, oh my god, I'm having heart palpitations or something. I felt relatively normal, other than the fact that I was just literally feeling a bit dazed and disoriented. And the first thing the doctor did was to look at me and said, "No, tell me more about your job. Are you stressed at the moment?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, let me tell you about my job." And at the end of it, it was like, "Yeah, I think you might be a little stressed. You know, go and have a sleep." And so, come so what, back later. what did you do there? Did you, like because you obviously didn't take any time off. So what did you actually do to to try and so unwind? The, the thing is, the final month where actually we were negotiating on the term sheet. So like we had a very good plan. So we basically we believed in the term sheet we had, and we were just like negotiating on the terms. And yeah. it was like the t- last two months of the year, and we landed the we finalized it early January. But yeah, November December were very much like iterating on the on the term sheet, etc. So we were just like believing that this was going to be all right. Are we allowed to <laughs> tell the world-exclusive story of the um, term sheet dynamics? Or are we going to upset investors if I do that? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think know. this one, honestly, <laughs> I think uh, uh, there's a, the story is um, probably acceptable, which is uh, one of the more surreal problems that we had is that the term sheet um, was a combination of USD, but also some cryptocurrency um, in the form of status tokens, which um, came from status as an investor, because obviously they wanted us bought into their success. And because this was right in the middle of the 2017 ICO massive bull run, it ended up completely screwing up the term sheet specifics, because whilst they thought they were investing $5 million, of which like 500k or something was status tokens at the beginning, about two weeks later, it looked as if they were investing about $25 million, because the value of the tokens had like gone up by 5x, in this, um, or whatever it was, 10x, 20x, it was absolutely crazy in the space of um, a few weeks. Suffice it to say, that complicated closing the deal quite a lot. Um, and in the end, uh, they invested the $5 million that they intended to. But um, uh, in terms of 
surreal failure modes, which we really weren't anticipating having to deal with a you know, crazy, complicated FX positive disaster wasn't really what we had anticipated. Well, you've gone on to raise over $48 million, so you must be doing something right. Um, but I, I'd be interested to, to understand how you go about um, picking the VCs you want to work with. Because you do, you do hear stories of, of, of founders out there and they go out to market. And it's probably more with, with seed or pre-seed where it's just get the money, get the money, get the money. Um, but I know maybe after your first one or two rounds, you were able to slightly change and really become picky on who you worked with. Is that right? Um, so, yeah, it was interesting because so for the seed one, um, it was basically a strategic investor uh, status. But then for Series A, then we went really for proper VCs in London. And then on one hand, it was hard because we were doing like the fact we're building on an open ecosystem, doing open source software, saying that we just we don't want to take 100% of the market. We just want to grow the market to trillions of dollars and then take 25% of it. Uh, it's something which can be quite unusual for VCs who just like, but surely you want to do Airbnb, but for X and just like own 100% of the market. So on one hand, it was difficult. On the other hand, it means that the people who actually understand it are completely aligned with you and will back you. So it's a self-selecting process, which can be a bit depressing, but at least when you when you find someone who actually gets what you're trying to do, which are the people who are backing us uh, do, then you, you can trust that they're on board fully. You yeah, certainly an interesting um, experience. I mean, none of our funding rounds have been um, straightforward. Um, I know that people often say, oh, you know, there's this one where we raised in two days and then this other one which took two years. For us, it's been pretty similar all the way through because of this pattern that um, a lot of investors, I think, are just pattern matching and they want to find the next Slack or they want to find the next WhatsApp. And therefore, they look for something that smells and feels like the business plan for Slack or WhatsApp. And you know, the closest thing we have to a business plan is probably Netscape in the early days of the web or possibly email back in the day. And it's kind of telling, perhaps, that Notion led our Series A, who uh, have a lot of message labs people there, and or ex-message labs. It's the original management team of message labs who basically set up Notion. And they'd obviously built a billion-dollar company on top of email. And so... Uh, ironically, they were pattern matching themselves, but it was something which they actually recognized um, and could easily get behind. Whereas anybody who was looking for a conventional proprietary closed, hold the users hostage, Silicon Valley model it was not a click. And that is 80, 90%, despite the number of um, VCs who claim to understand open source and open ecosystems. Um, uh, we, we haven't. We've seen a much smaller set of folk who really do get it. But then when they do get it, the alignment is crazy and it's lots of fun. Yeah, because I was going to say there, like if, if you are looking for VCs that get exactly what it is you're, you're doing, does it really narrow the amount of VCs that you can speak to? And yeah. as you said, if they, if, they, if they get it and they are aligned, it, it should be a little bit of a no-brainer with, with investing in the company. But if they don't get it, and you know they're a good fit, that's where the, the frustration can start, I suppose. Yes. Like, for example, for our Series B, we went um, more talking to people across the Atlantic. And sometimes you were t we were talking to people who were at the Netscape era and these sort of things who have seen it and have seen potentially been part of it. But like... It just felt like they had forgotten completely what had happened because it was uh, it was just not coming through, which was, yeah, sometimes it can be a bit frustrating. Yeah, we've had very little success in on the US side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, we've done the whole Sand Hill Road thing and literally gone down the road and spoken to everybody. And it seems as if the pattern, mat pattern matching is even stronger there, perhaps because Silicon Valley is in some ways very homogenous in terms of the business plans and the models. Uh, whereas Europe is still a little bit more emergent and has a few more left-of-field options, which have you know, been to, to our benefit. I'm assuming eventually we will get to the point where the US market 
just looks at the numbers and they ignore the actual um, nature of the business and say treat it as a purely financial uh, maneuver. But uh, I mean, thought we might be there for Series B, but apparently not. And if if that's an investor that is coming on board, just out of curiosity, is that someone that you actually want? Because the only value you're getting there is money. A quick sponsor reminder. If you're looking to fund growth without having to give away equity, Uncap solved this problem. To find out more, go to weareuncapped.com forward slash UKTN. And to avail of a 10% discount off your fees, use the code UKTN10. That's UKTN10. Yeah, uh, we would much, much rather have um, aligned folk and both the strategics and the um, commercial VCs or, or dedicated VCs that we've had have been very aligned. Yeah, but we we were not looking, we haven't been looking specifically for money. We've been also looking for people who could help us. So sometimes it's been like in Series A, it was to help us actually grow the company, like expertise in growing the company, but also people like First Minute Capital who have a lot of um, a very good network. And when you're trying to actually build an open ecosystem, you want to be able to access people everywhere in different spheres, pretty high level to actually make the world aware of what we are doing. And um, on Series B, um, using Jan Tallinn's experience uh, from Skype was useful or um, Juan uh, from uh, Protocol Labs experience on building a community and uh, partnering with them as well because we're very similar uh, is also useful. So, so far we found people who were not just in for the money but also bringing something else. And there have been some instances where there have been options who are pure money that we've sort of considered but when we've ended up with a choice, we've always, always gone for somebody who would be more strategically aligned one way or another. Yeah, well, going with the smart money is normally something that we've heard a lot when when I've been interviewing founders in the past that, you know, the only advice that they give to others when raising money, if you can get the smart money and what they consider the smart money is somebody that can or a company or a VC that can bring something to the table other than the money. Your Your most recent round, which was your Series B, uh, was $30 million. And Amandine, I did read somewhere where you had mentioned at one time that you didn't need the money uh, when you were raising it. Um, and again, that's advice I, I've, I've heard in the past that you need to be raising money when you don't need it. And um, because when you do need it, it's too late. Look, you, you guys know from, from, from early on as well how difficult it could be when you've got a, a short runway. Um, I'm just interested to ask how much of your time it took to go after the Series B and to close it and finalize it. And the reason I ask is because it's hard for some people to get their head around if you don't need the money to be going after it now. And if you don't need it, people also understand that it takes so much of your time out of the business to, you know, go and present. You know, when you finally get someone that's interested, take them to the next stage and going through it and going through it and going through it and eventually signing a deal. So how much of your time did it take to, to out of the business to, to go and close that round? It took quite a lot, to be honest. So the entire process took probably six months and uh, we spent quite a lot of time pitching, etc. But I think it was really worth it because it allowed us to make the most of the growth of the market because basically we were set on a profitable trajectory, growing organically, etc., etc. But then when the pandemic hit, uh, online communication has been like critical for everyone. So the market was just exploding. So we needed to be able to actually um, uh, be part of this growth and accelerate. And that's when we could have stayed very, uh, very slowly growing, but it would have, we just have been missing the, the train, basically. The boat, what is the idiom? Yeah, we missed the boat. Um, so yeah, I mean, we could have uh, been okay, but I guess it's slightly... Um, uh, generous to say that uh, we didn't have to raise. It's more that we chose explicitly to start burning faster, and then we did have to raise, <laughs> having started to burn faster. And um, I mean, we had a, a bit of a false start in November of um, twenty twenty, where we experimented with the whole: um, Hey, can we raise without doing anything? Have we got to the point where people believe sufficiently in the products and the protocol? that we can go to a couple of the big names and say, hey, guys, no, do you just want to preemptively jump on board with minimal due diligence and just get the deal done? And 
it, it was interesting. There were two big names who are more of the kind of sort of classic big money um, folk who at least t- took our calls and meetings and entertained it. But it became apparent that they uh, would still want to go through an entire process anyway and that the conviction wasn't high enough, at least for a non-domain-specific, more strategic investor. And so we went away for a few months, and then it was, what, March or so that we came out again, and then we closed in June or so. So, yeah, I mean, if that was the sort of time frame um, for for the B. But it was an interesting experience, an experiment to see if we could do the whole, hey, do you want to just sign a check right now? And we're not quite there yet. But hopefully, if we have to do a series, we might be in a better position. You, you had mentioned that your your burn went up so as you could, you know, take advantage of growth. And you do you did close the, the 30 million as such. What are your plans for for growth and, and how you're going to use that? Like, I, I take it, it's, it's your typical, you know, building on the tech, growing the team, and, and then obviously marketing. But It'd be interesting to hear how you how you're planning on on doing that because like people can say marketing, but like what what exactly are you going to do to market the company? So honestly, we've um, worked a lot on this growth last year. So we've uh, literally doubled from sixty to one hundred twenty in twenty twenty one people. Uh, people, sorry, uh, and a big part of it was really uh, growing the tech team, but also the sales team. And uh, that's basically it. We imp- imp- did we increase a bit the marketing? Yeah, mm. I guess we increased a bit the marketing uh, budget, but that wasn't the biggest part. It's been very much on the hiring side. And and how was the hiring been? Because like, there's like you, my guys might understand a little bit more where there's there's a position you need to fill. There's lots of people applying, um, and people are being snapped up left, right, and center. Uh, good quality uh, candidates are are being snapped up. Do you have to move fast because you don't want to move too fast because, you know, you're trying to make a judgment call here on someone who's going to come on and, and, and help build your business. And at the same time, you kind of you're under that pressure of, you know, I feel this person could be a really good fit. We, I want to jump to the next stage uh, when it comes to hiring people. So how has that been? Yeah, it's been so it's been tough because we had a lot of rules to fill. On the plus side, we are being an open source project. It's we have we're very mission driven, so it attracts a lot of excellent talent who believe in what we do. But yes, you do have to to move fast because the market is so hot these days. I think we have cheated um, quite a lot with the open source um, community, meaning that, as you say, it really funnels in some really, really interesting people who I could only dream to work with in the past. And you really get a network effect there too. The whole A players attract A players thing we've seen um, almost to a fault because often uh, we've ended up getting A players in some of the more exotic bits of the company. So whilst um, we do... Um, as our main product, kind of encrypted, run-your-own Slack-style communication, um, the technology can be used for any kind of communications. And so you can do IoT stuff, you could do virtual world stuff, you could do voice and video conferencing and all sorts of things. And it tends to be the more um, exotic stuff like um, spatial web, virtual world stuff, where we end up starting to gather some incredibly hardcore, very enthusiastic people who frantically want to have a world which is not dominated by Facebook creating their dystopian vision of the metaverse and instead want to actually build something that's um, open and positive for society. And so we have to sometimes be careful that we don't accidentally take in a whole bunch of um, excellent refugees escaping somewhere like Facebook and instead also hire out the core as well as the the more exciting bits. But honestly, it's a good problem to have. Also, countries, I think we're up to 23 different countries, which turns out to be quite a lot of HR overhead. And we just hired an amazing head of people who has sort of taken us by the hand and said, seriously, 23 countries? Shall we say stop now? Maybe 23 countries is enough to find the right talents. We don't have to create new ones if we come across someone random. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) I was going to ask, because you're obviously both in the office there together, and I'm taking it that the the office is in London. And when, when, when the pandemic hit, it opened a lot of people's eyes that, 
you know, they didn't just have to hire talent that was, say, in in London, for argument's sake. Um, everyone's working remotely and they, they started looking further afield. Did you already have people working in, in different countries when before we went into the pandemic? And, and what are your thoughts on, because, you know, it depends on who you ask. Some people will say working remotely works perfect for us. We're able to open up, um, as you said, the, the talent range between 23 different countries. Um, and then you, you could ask somebody else, and they go, no, I need them all in the office here. And, you know, we all work as a team and you need to bounce ideas off each other. So what are your thoughts on that? So basically, we've always been distributed because the first 12 people who actually set up the company were already split between France and the UK. So that was the start. So we were already split from the get-go. And then we've been hiring a lot from the open source community, which means that we were um, hiring the people we had and were not in London. So we've been remote from from the get-go. We're still happy to have an office, though, and we have one in France. And obviously, the product is a decentralized, secure communication platform. So you kind of hope that we would be able to decentralizedly um, work together. And... um, I mean, it certainly hasn't been perfect. I mean, some companies declare themselves to be the paragon of remote work. And I'd, I don't know, I'd probably rate ourselves as probably five or six out of ten. There's still so much more that we could um, do on it. And some of the failure modes have been quite surprising. For instance, uh, the fact that you know everything we do is using our own platform is both a blessing and a curse. For instance, we don't have message board style capability in Element today. It's just threaded chat conversations like on Slack. And as anybody will know who has used Slack too much or Element too much for that matter, you can end up with a fairly unhealthy, incredibly busy hundreds of rooms constantly chatting away and stuff just gets lost in the history. And we had one of the managers come to us and say, look, I feel that if I'm not reading all of those 400 rooms simultaneously 24-7, I'm going to miss some absolutely critical decision that will change the entire course of the company and my job. And if I wasn't there at that particular moment in time, it would have, it would have gone into the midst of time. And we said, ah, crap. Yeah, you got a point. And um, uh, I think that's where a lot of our problems have come from, that we have dog-fooded too enthusiastically and then had to you know, separately set up a message board system so that people can do these longer-term, asynchronous. asynchronous, slower, more thoughtful, um, sort of 24-hour turn- turnaround messaging rather than 24-second turnaround messaging. And um, I know another thing that we've probably got wrong on the remote side of things is that we just haven't found a way to capture the serendipity of going to lunch together and we didn't even realize we'd lost it because we were saying oh we chat to each other online constantly you know we're we're always chatting away and there are a couple of really sticky technical things which um, people had got hung up on like do we migrate this system from a to b do we rewrite this or whatever and during the pandemic these things have been festering away for like months i can I think there's one of them that had literally been uh, growing smelly and worrying for about nine months, and it was starting to really block things. And people had three-hour-long video conferences to try to get to the bottom of it. Everybody would go and sort of dig into their corners and argue with one another, and you just give up. And then literally the first day that people came back to the office in one of the many full-start reopenings um, towards the end of the pandemic, um, hopefully, um, a set of people involved in that discussion were in the same place. And we went for lunch together. We went to the Thai restaurant down the road in Chiswick. And we sat down and said, oh, my God, what are we going to do about this nightmare problem? And in about three minutes of just talking about it informally in a relaxed atmosphere over lunch where people hadn't prepared dossiers to justify their perspective, we were able to just negotiate not even negotiate we just turned out that we all agreed on what the solution should be it was like oh that's great cheers everybody and move on and i i don't know how you capture that um outside of a sit down around a table in a thai restaurant because we failed to do it online for the previous nine months and it was probably an existential threat to that bit of the company 
Yeah, it was like uh, like today we had um, a workshop which was a bit sensitive. And of course, strike day. Like, why I moved from France to the UK. I don't want to see strikes. <laughs> so, so TFL <laughs> shutting down the entire tube network. So uh, so people were like, ah, oh, I'm not sure how I'm going to come because it's strike. I said, guys, I don't care. Just jump on the cab, work in the cab. I don't care if it's taking you hours. I'll pay for it, but just come because otherwise it's not going to work out. And people left saying, oh, it was really good to be in person and uh, made the discussion completely easier, etc. So, so it's, it's only a fraction of the time that you need it. It's but, not yes. like um, you know, we've been interviewing product people recently and an awful lot of them have said, so wh where is the office? And if we say it's distributed, they immediately just clock out because they just can't see how you could ever work remotely. But I think as long as you have the option to get people in the right place, sometimes for mm -hmm. critical things, I think that's basically our revelation. How hands-on are you now? Because you've grown, I'd said, to, to 120. So like at the beginning, I, I take it you both would have been very involved in the, the interview rounds and who's coming on board. Have you taken a step back from that or are you both still very involved in it? So we've taken, we've taken a step back, but we still like to talk to people uh, at the last stage if, if anything, to meet them. Otherwise, it's just too weird to have people turning up you've never talked to. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I personally cannot get past yeah. it. It's like, uh, what? <laughs> so it's honestly, it's not like I want to have the final say. It's more like I really want to meet this person before they join because otherwise it's going to be too strange. Also, by the time people get to us, the chances are high that yeah, um, we want to hire them anyway. And so it's more of a closing the deal and... Um, making sure they feel appreciated and loved and they've got the attention of um, the, the founders to hopefully get them across um, the line. But um, I'd say, no. I, I had the realization about a year and a half ago now, I think, um, possibly before our, yeah, definitely before our Series B, that as CEO, my job was basically um, succession planning, <laughs> that the best way to reason about what I was doing was to make sure that if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, the company can still operate. And the, any point where I'm on the critical path of anything is basically a bug. And it's you know, practically going to hurt the company because I'm juggling so many random different things around the place. To actually be actually on the critical path of any of them is going to hurt them. But also, it really forces delegation and hiring people who can go and broaden out the things which we both used to do when it was like all founder sales or, or when I was like ahead of product by default because there wasn't anybody else defining what product we should build. And um, that's certainly a really interesting um, exercise, a slightly zen exercise, as it were, of going and slowly dismantling yourself and um, hopefully still adding value, but more from a advisory consultative thing it's like being a consultant at your own company almost to try to make sure that the people who are actually running it are able to do their job and i'm kind of glad that that light bulb turned on because i can see a dystopia where the penny never drops and uh, uh, the opposite happens also if anything we can go on holiday now <laughs> uh, absolutely yeah the most important thing you're able to take some time off and you know you've got a, a team working with you that, that are capable of doing exactly what they need to do. Can I ask you a question in relation to acquiring uh, businesses? Because you did acquire a, a company called uh, Gitter. Um, how did you go about that? Because I know there's founders listening to this podcast now that are in a position that are in the same position you would have been before you acquired that company. And I'd just love to know how you first approach them you know, is it a phone call? Is it an email? Is it somebody else going in to figure out on your behalf? Is it, did you know somebody there? Like, cause you know, once you, once you make the, the initial contact, it's either going to go in your favor or it's not. So, um, Getter is an interesting one and it really came from our relationship with GitLab who had already acquired Getter, um, from when it was a startup back in, I think, 2016 or 17 or so. And um, we had been and are in close contact with GetLab over the years. I'm trying to remember how we connected with Sid originally. 
it might have been an introduction via VC, or I think I might have even cold um, emailed him. So since the um, CEO of GitLab, and GetLab's a really fascinating company in terms of being 10 out of 10 on the remote working stakes and 10 out of the 10 on the open source business um, model. And they obviously IPOs from last year and are worth probably $15, 20000000000 billion or whatever now. Um, and Sid is a fascinating um, uh, chap to talk to, particularly when they were probably, I guess, at their series B or C stage when we first started talking to him. And we were in San Francisco and said, hey, we're trying to do something similar to you. We think that GitLab could do with communication pieces. Do you want to meet up and have a chat? And so it was the classic um, almost mentoring thing almost of going and syncing um, with him whenever we have a chance to see how his business is going, admire how he runs it, try to map his success onto what we're doing. And I know you always hear these stories of CEOs going and randomly cold calling the CEO of Intel's phone at four o'clock in the morning or whatever it is in order to try to establish a, uh, what, well, get guidance, frankly, and exchange tips. And it was through that route that, um, I guess two years ago now also, Sid um, pinged us and said, hey, uh, you know that we bought Gitter the, all those years ago, um, thinking about it more, honestly, it's probably more of a match with you guys than it is um, here at GitLab. Um, do you want to do a deal? Um, because I think reading between the lines, they were gearing up to IPO and they didn't want to have, they wanted to focus their um, balance sheets and PL as tightly as possible. And so that's how that particular um, one works out. It's not a normal acquisition. It wasn't us going off and stalking somebody. It was purely um, uh, kind of speculative and reactive, but also an incredibly good fit because um, Gitter has got a really good um, fit with what we're doing. And we basically use them as a poster child for how you can connect an existing communication network into matrix and right now we're having the same conversation with about five other people who we didn't acquire but are yes. ironically yeah. competitors <laughs> to element and um, they are saying well apparently we've got to use this matrix thing how do we do that and we can literally point at Gitter and say well there's Gitter who integrated themselves against um, matrix we hardly helped them at all they did it in a month okay, we bought them to help incentivize them to actually do it. But technically speaking, they did the whole thing in the open and we can just point at it and use it as an amazing tutorial for you know, all the way up to like Facebook. In fact, I think I pointed it at Jack Dorsey when um, we were talking to getting Twitter on Matrix, which is a conversation still um, bubbling along and being able to say to Jack and Parag, hey, look, read the blog post about how we did it with Gitter. Um, was super useful. So that that's why we ended up um, acquiring them. But it is, again, for a change, I'm afraid, not your normal cookie cutter. Um, we needed X more ARR and therefore we bought the com competition style deal. It's probably a, a perfect time to, you know, be able to end the podcast on that. But what I'd like to do is, is ask you both one final question. And this is one that I ask all my guests to come on the show is what book have you read that's made a massive impact on on the company? I He's looking first. at me because I'm the one reading the books. No, no, no. <laughs> what do you mean? I read books. I read more books than you do. Yeah, I read books in English and things. Um, <laughs> yeah, but not about companies. Yeah, I do. Oh, I, I know. You, you can give the responsible grown-up answer. I can give my one. Uh, I'm dithering because there are a few uh, to which I refer. Um, there is the... Um, well, the Ben Horowitz. Yeah, the Yes, I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to find the title. I forget how it's called. Uh, the Ben Horowitz uh, book, uh, which um, basically is him giving all his tips uh, from all his background, and I really liked it. I found it super useful. The hard thing uh, about hard things. Yes, the hard thing about hard things. So, so, so what, really what like... impact did that have on the business that in, that, that you found? Um. It's more impact on us on how to approach thing, things and um, how to react and maybe some tips on 
how to look at things. So I would say it's more impact as founders. I really found it useful. So I could um, give a sort of business self-help answer like I'm reading Blitz Scaling by Reid Hoffman at the moment, if you can believe that. Um, but, but my actual um, uh, books, and it's such a cliche, but it's even, it is true, is some of the stuff that Neil Stevenson has written in the sci-fi space, um, particularly Cryptonomicon, which is literally a book about an end-to-end encrypted decentralized communication startup, albeit in the Philippines rather than um, here. Um, was incredibly formative um, back when I read it, when it came out in probably, what, 98, 99. Also, um, Seven Eves, another Neil Stevenson book, which um, features as a plot device a decentralized communication network, which is almost identical to what we've built um, today. And I don't know what it is about Neil Stevenson stuff, but it feels as if um, we're sort of caught in the same technological rut <laughs> and um, we go and build something or experimenting with something and then a few years later it pops up in one of his books like in um, Fall um, is one of his more recent books um, and or Dodge in Hell and to give it its other name and Fall has got a massive section about decentralized reputation and the idea that in the future um, everybody will surf the web using filters that they basically have subscribed to, published by different editorial sources. And the rich guys go and hire editors to curate their view of the internet for them. And the not-so-rich people might go and use sort of public editorial feeds or use their friends' feeds. And that is a fascinating idea, which I thought that we'd come up with for Matrix um, about two years earlier. And it's something that we have live on the network so that we basically empower users to filter out the stuff they don't want to see. So like Mozilla or Fosdem or Red Hat or other big matrix servers basically publish the higher quality rooms and the rooms you do not want to go anywhere near as a kind of gray list and people can then subscribe and blend together their view of the world. That's literally what he was talking about. So for they've got this slightly trippy relationship um, with Neil Stevenson, who seems to be independently in coming up with the same ideas <laughs> and yeah, clearly has got an implant in there or something. Well, at least he's writing a book that you can read so you can you can follow the guidelines if you need to. Yes, all the horrible failure votes in yeah. all of these instances. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for listening. Before you go, could you please take a moment to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening to this podcast? I'd really appreciate the support. And remember, our sponsor, Uncapped, offer up to 5 million of capital for a flat fee. You pay back only as you generate sales. No dilution or loss of control. Apply online decision within 24 hours make monthly repayments that flex with your revenue head to weareuncapped.com forward slash uktn to find out more and to avail of a 10 percent discount off your fees use the code uktn10 that's uktn10